Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfey, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's November 2023. November is C. difficile Awareness Month, and the week of November 18th to 24th is U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week and World Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness Week. It seems quite appropriate, then, to devote this month's podcast to a discussion of antibiotic use and stewardship. Today, I'll be talking with the authors of several papers published in this month's issue of Itchy that address antimicrobial use and stewardship in dentistry, an area of practice that I suspect may not always come to mind when one thinks about antibiotic use and opportunities for stewardship interventions. But as I learned while preparing for this podcast, approximately 10% of all outpatient antibiotic prescriptions in the U.S. are written by dentists. So I'm really excited to learn more about this topic today. Joining me are Dr. Katie Suda, Professor of Medicine, Pharmacy, and Clinical and Translational Sciences, Associate Director of the Center for Pharmaceutical Policy and Prescribing, and Director of the Transition to Independence Program at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Michael Durkin, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and the co-director of antimicrobial stewardship and an associate hospital epidemiologist at Barnes Jewish Hospital and the medical director of infection prevention and antibiotic stewardship at Barnes Jewish St. Peter's and Progress West Hospitals. And finally, Dr. Craig Miller, who is the Alvin L. Morris Professor of Oral Health Research, the associate dean for faculty affairs and development, and the director of the Behavior Nudge Unit at the University of Kentucky College of Dentistry in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. So I suspect that many people listening to the podcast, the topic of antibiotic use in dentistry is one that they've not thought a lot about, and that like me, they may have been surprised to hear that this accounts for a sizable proportion of all the outpatient antibiotic prescriptions that are written in the U.S. each year. So I think it could be helpful to begin our discussion with some background information on this topic. And so, Craig, as the dental professional here in our group today, can you talk to us a little bit about antibiotic use in dentistry? For example, what are some of the common indications for these antibiotic prescriptions? Thank you, David. Sure. Dental antibiotics are used primarily in three scenarios. One in for dental infections, where you may have a cellulitis or a periapical infection associated with a diseased or dying tooth. Two, dentists use them prophylactically per American Heart Association guidelines. And three, dentists will use antibiotics prophylactically for surgical procedures, especially for the placement of dental implants perioperatively. Great. And so what do we know about appropriateness of antibiotic prescribing in dentistry? We know a lot of prescriptions are written. What do we know about how appropriate those prescriptions are? We found both in the private sector, as well as using the rich electronic health record data available in the Veterans Health Administration, that three out of four antibiotics prescribed by dentists are not concordant with guidelines. And that's looking at both at all of those indications that Craig talked about, the treatment of acute infections, as well as prophylaxis? Yes, but the interesting thing is that there is actually not guidelines available for every reason that Craig mentioned that dentists may prescribe antibiotics for. So there are guidelines available for the therapeutic use of antibiotics, so for oral pain and swelling. 
and there's guidelines for the prevention of infective endocarditis. There are also guidelines provided by the American Dental Association on the prevention of prosthetic joint infections. But there are no guidelines for dental surgery, such as what Dr. Miller mentioned, implants or extractions, or in another category that dentists refer to as medically compromised patients or medically complex patients. This includes a variety of different patient comorbidities, such as immunocompromised patients, patients with diabetes, as well as patients who have had previous head and neck trauma, typically radiation or, or cancer. Yeah, just to chime in to what Katie said, uh, we're working on a project with colleagues and there's no standard definition for the medically compromised or what would potentially, what patients would require antibiotics. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to kind of standardize and evaluate and assess appropriateness for categories where no guidelines currently exist. So we have a textbook that we utilize. In fact, I'm a co-author on that. It's called The Dental Management of the Medically Compromised Patient. And we get into details about when antibiotics should be used and not used. But as a, any textbook, it's not been through peer review. And we need to create these panels that can sit down and discuss what's the appropriate use and vet them in, in other ways. Yeah, Craig, I think that's a great point. And a lot of times we'd like to, it to be a, based on evidence, but one of the challenges in dentistry, just like medicine, is the there's a lack of randomized controlled trials and, and robust data. So a lot of times it's based on expert opinion and, and panels to make these recommendations. Agreed. And I guess it's important to talk about the fact that inappropriateness could really refer to any aspect of the prescribing, whether it's it should have been given and it wasn't, or it wasn't given and it should have been, or the the dose or the drug selected, and all of those things all contribute to something being deemed inappropriate. And I think we should also talk about the fact that all this unnecessary use or inappropriate use of antibiotics can lead to avoidable adverse outcomes and excess healthcare costs, which is you know one of the key things that antibiotic stewardship attempts to address. And in, an, in a paper that's also in the November issue of Itchy, Cynthia Gong and her colleagues estimated the costs of inappropriate antibiotic use. And they weren't able to join us here today, but they estimated the costs of antibiotics associated, uh, excuse me, a they estimated the costs associated with the antibiotics themselves, as well as the costs associated with two important adverse effects, C. difficile infection and anaphylaxis or severe hypersensitivity reactions that required an ED visit or a hospital admission. And their estimates were based on several assumptions about antibiotic prescribing, including an inappropriateness rate of about 83%. And what they determined was that this inappropriate prescribing resulted in about $10.8 million per year in excess healthcare costs and about $20 million in patient out-of-pocket expenses in the U.S. every year. And of course, other adverse outcomes can occur with antibiotic use, including antibiotic resistance, but these weren't included in the estimates that they provided in that paper. But antibiotic stewardship isn't just about preventing overprescribing or unnecessary prescribing, as we mentioned, but also about making sure that a patient for whom an antibiotic is indicated gets the right drug at the right time, at the right dose, for the right duration. And Craig, in a letter to the editor that you and your colleagues have published in Itchy, 
you remind us about another aspect of inappropriate prescribing that I think is important for us to talk about today, and that's underprescribing or lack of prescribing prophylactic antibiotics in situations where they're indicated. Yes. Uh, my colleague, Martin Thornhill, who helped author the letter to the editor, has studied this extensively. And in a paper that he published not too many years ago, he found that about 64% of dental procedures that require antibody prophylaxis based on the AHA guidelines, about 64% of these were unlikely to have been covered with antibiotic prophylaxis in patients at high risk, in the high risk category for developing infective endocarditis. And Martin and colleagues have also published and found that only about 32% to uh, 25 and 25.9% to 32% in that range of high-risk patients are, are receiving the appropriate antibody prophylaxis when they're undergoing an invasive dental procedure. So about a, anywhere from 30 to 33% is a ballpark figure saying dentists not only with the previous problem discussed, but in this case are not prescribing when they should be prescribing. And, and that puts patients at risk for infective endocarditis and all the sequela associated with that. Yeah, you know, there's no doubt that when a patient is indicated to receive an antibiotic, they definitely should receive that antibiotic. And we know that there's problems with overprescribing and underprescribing. However, we need to be really careful when we interpret the results from that study. The study used the market scan database which is an insurance claims database. And there's a unique limitation of that data set that a lot of people are not aware of, which where the prescriber type is not included in the prescription claims. So you know an antibiotic was prescribed, but you don't know if it was a dentist or a cardiologist, for example. And this isn't a problem where we're looking at antihypertensives, but this is a problem with antibiotics, especially when you're trying to associate it with a dental visit. So what the study that we're discussing did was they used an extremely strict definition of antibiotic prophylaxis. So an example of that was amoxicillin, two grams times one dose. And you know, there's nothing I would like more than for dentists to only prescribe a single dose of antibiotic prophylaxis to patients so that patients don't have a large supply of antibiotics sitting around in their medicine cabinet for a year. However, dentists simply do not prescribe this way, nor do patients want to pay a copay for four capsules of amoxicillin. They want to pay their copay for the antibiotic that they're going to need for the next year or for the series of dental surgeries that they're about to have, such as an extraction followed by a dental implant. So what happens here is that there's there were too many antibiotic prescription claims not included that may have been actually prescribed for antibiotic prophylaxis. And there's some keys in the study that this occurred. So the study did a tier-based approach, which Craig mentioned, of procedures where an antibiotic is always indicated, procedures where an antibiotic is sometimes indicated, and procedures where antibiotics are rarely indicated. And in those sometimes and rarely categories, it actually summed up to about the 65% that Craig mentioned. So there's some key findings there that patients likely did actually receive 
an antibiotic prescription during like a preventative care visit, a routine cleaning visit to be used in a subsequent visit. I would like to add, and I agree completely with Katie, but I would also like to add the fact that the paper by Gong uses clindamycin data for their data analysis, and clindamycin is no longer recommended in the 2021 guidelines. So while that may be an accurate overestimate estimate for the 2018 data, I, I believe that dentists are, are no longer prescribing the clindamycin per the AH guidelines, but it'd be interesting to compare and look at a more current study to see whether I'm correct or not. Yeah, Craig, I think that's a, a, a really interesting point. It brings up the concept of uh, how long it takes people to follow and adhere to new practice guidelines. So, um, and, and Katie's comments about dentistry and administrative data are really well taken to one of the challenges we struggle with that's uh, unique with dentistry is there are a lot of you know independent solo practitioners um, there's not as many large academic dental centers that have networks of healthcare providers with them so a lot of the data and the way that dentistry is practiced is a little bit of a black hole and we try to piece together what we know from administrative data claims sets and other things. But we do know there's things like antibiotic dispensing that's probably occurring in dental offices when patients forget to take their pre-medication that's hard to capture. And we do know from from data related to, you know, other practices that it, there's a, a gap between when guidelines are released and it and adhered adherence to guidelines too. So one of the things that we looked at, and I think it's discussed in in this manuscript that will be released in, in November as well, is how we interviewed dental students and uh, residents and faculty about their experiences with antibiotic prescribing. And Craig was right that they knew there were new guidelines that were out. They didn't know what they said very well, though. <laughs> so... So I think that, the, which I don't blame the dentists, you know, honestly, when we talk to medical students and residents and faculty and and people out in private practice and primary care settings, that's pretty common where they'll say, I know there's new guidelines. I quite, I don't quite know what they say. I have a feeling that, you know, I'm no longer supposed to prescribe this antibiotic, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do instead. And I hope to get around to reading them at some point in the future, which I think is a common problem in healthcare in general, is that a lot of times we we don't have to time to keep up with all the new guidelines and, and evidence. So like Craig, I would be very I'm gonna be very curious about how antibiotic prescribing changes with this kind of fundamental shift with the dental guidelines where we've been trying to push dentists away from clindamycin because of the risk of, of C. diff. Yeah, and keep in mind that, you know, it's only one set of guidelines. So clindamycin is still being prescribed for acute oral infections, implants and extractions, medically compromised patients. So, and actually there's there's still mentioned in the acute oral infection guidelines as an alternative, in addition to, you know, azithromycin and doxycycline. So I was just at a dental meeting a month ago and, you know, I was talking to many dentists who were not yet aware of that um, change in the 2021 update to the 2007 AHA-ADA guidelines. Yeah, I, I will say one of the challenges 
with recommending alternatives to amoxicillin and penicillin is we we don't have other great antibiotics that would cover oral flora very well, which is somewhat surprising. You know, we've got cephalosporins, but the anaerobic coverage isn't great for it. There's concerns about dentists and uh, cross-reactivity between cephalosporins and penicillins that make some of them nervous. And then the uh, the anaerobic coverage outside of clindamycin is, is not good for doxycycline and azithromycin. Interestingly, there's a wide variety based on country too. So in in certain places like in Australia and, and the United Kingdom, they prescribe a lot of metronidazole for dental infections, which in the U.S. is something that uh, I don't think anyone's taught. At least I didn't learn it in medical school or uh you know, we never discussed it in, in fellowship as a viable option for, for treating dental infections too. So there's, I think, a lot that still needs to be needs to be learned about alternatives to, to beta-lactam antibiotics. Yeah, we actually published that paper in Itchy. So uh, thanks for the shout out. Well, I think this has been a great background discussion to, to kind of help us all understand better the where your studies fit into all of this that we'll be talking about more today. And clearly there's more for us to learn uh, as you've just highlighted for us. But Katie, you and your colleagues uh, looked at antibiotic prescribing by dental professionals in the US over an eight year period from 2012 to 2019. So what questions were you trying to answer when you initiated that research? Yeah, we observed in the Veterans Health Administration that there was a decrease in prescribing of antibiotics by dentists who are practicing in the VA, but there was some older population-level data reported in the U.S. That, that reported that prescribing of antibiotics by dentists actually increased over time. So we wanted to examine our data set, which had more recent data to see if prescribing by dentists had increased, decreased, or stayed the same. And also, we wanted to explore any differences by dental specialty, as well as the agent prescribed, going back to our previous conversation about clindamycin. All right. So what did you do to try to answer those questions that you were trying to answer? We used the Acuvia LRX data set, which is a population-level data set, which represents 92% of all outpatient prescriptions filled in the United States. And so what did you find? Overall, we found that the provider-based prescribing rate did not change between 2012 and 2019. And this is discordant with decreasing antibiotic prescription trends for medical clinicians over the same time period. And even though the majority of antibiotics prescribed by dentists are for preventative reasons, the mean day supply was seven days, which is the same as antibiotics prescribed by medical clinicians. And only 3% of these antibiotics had a day supply of one day. As expected, we found that general dentists prescribe the majority of antibiotics. General dentists are the majority of dental professionals in the U.S., but we were surprised to find that the prescribing rate was actually higher for endodontists, periodontists, prostodontists, and oral and maxillofacial surgeons. And all of these dental specialists also significantly increased their prescribing rate over the study period. And I think the, our findings for oral surgeons are particularly striking, which the reader can see in figure one. I do want to point out one really positive finding, though. 
And while we didn't see any differences in clindamycin prescribing, this was before the 2021 guidelines that we were just talking about, we actually found that the mean day supply decreased by 2% per year, which is, in my opinion, a very positive finding because there have been recommendations as well as literature provided by some dental professional organizations, which is encouraging shorter duration of antibiotics. One of the findings that I just found interesting because I hadn't spent much time talking about or thinking about this subject was just the fact that there were 27 million prescriptions written each year by this group of professionals. So I think that just kind of shows us how much this group contributes to antibiotic prescribing and, and therefore kind of why it's important to, to address uh, prescribing like we are in other groups of prescribing uh, or prescribers. So I think that in and of itself to me was an interesting finding. Yeah, I hear that pretty frequently, Dave, that, you know, dentists are actually the third ranked prescriber group and actually oral surgeons are not included in that. So if you look at the CDC data, you know, advanced practice clinicians, family practitioners, and then dentists and oral surgeons do fall below that. But, you know, there's actually a a very few number of oral surgeons in this country. Katie, can I ask you a question in that data set where you show about 135,000 prescribing rate per thousand dentists, or if I calculate right, about 135 per dentist per year. Did you all separate that to say that oral surgeons prescribed more than the general dentists or what were they rather similar? Yes, we found that the oral surgeon prescribing rate was higher when compared to general dentists. And I believe that that's reported in the paper as well. Right. So that that translate from a dental perspective to me, if a dentist works about 46 weeks out of the year, about three antibody prescriptions per week. And, and it gets into the question of why, why do dentists do that? Why do they write three a week? And if I may, I'll, I'll propose maybe four reasons of why they do that. One is they're trying to alleviate a problem if a patient calls in and say, I've got a toothache and they don't have a a time slot for them to put them in, they'll say, well, I'll I'll go ahead and do that. Sort of what you all termed as just-in-case prescribing. So why might they want to alleviate the problem? Well, possibly because of unanticipated regret. They don't want to regret having not given the antibiotic to the one person who really needed it. And the second principle that may be at work here is actions better than inaction in the mind of the provider. They're thinking that they're likely to help with the antibiotic and this would buy them some time and until they can fit them in the schedule. A third principle is that they have risk averse behavior with the medical legal community that may be contributing to why they want to give a prescription so I don't get sued or end up in court over something that I should have taken care of. And a fourth principle that could be investigated that may be contributing to this issue is trust. They don't want to break the trust with the patient and the patient calls and says they have a toothache and it's been hurting for a long time. And so they don't want to break that trust. But dentistry is a lot different from medicine in the respect that most of the treatments that we provide when there's an infection is we can either do a root canal or take the tooth out and we can solve the problem. And neither one of those procedures often require an antibiotic. Uh, The problem is, is that the patient may not present at that time. They may present through a phone call, or uh, I believe maybe 
at our facility, about 10% of patients end up in the emergency department the evening before, are given an antibiotic there and told to arrive at our facility the next morning, which they do. But if they would just wait 12 hours or 24 hours, we could take the tooth out without having to have given the antibiotic that was prescribed the evening before. Yeah, absolutely. I I 100% agree with your comments. I actually just presented on this topic at ID Week and presented many of the points that you talked about. You know, we found in our focus groups, as well as our qualitative interviews, some of which were published in ASHI earlier this year, you know, echoing your comments that dentists are very risk averse in general as a profession, and they perceive greater risk of not prescribing an antibiotic than an antibiotic-associated adverse drug event. And a lot of that's linked to how siloed our healthcare system is, because when patients have an adverse drug event, they don't call their dentist, right, to receive care for that AD, unless it's related to their dental surgery. They go to the ED or they see their primary primary medical clinician. And so that information of the ADE is then never fed forward back to the dentist. And you know, we we also talk about how medical decisions significantly impact prescribing by dentists, things like, you know, prosthetic joints or orthopedic implants and, you know, the lack of integration of the medical record with the dental record in most dental practices. And also going back to your point of going to the emergency room, you know, toothache is more common in the emergency room than our asthma exacerbations or myocardial infarctions. I mean, toothache is more prevalent, yet we don't have dentists in the ED or most of us don't. And oral care is, we have a huge access problem in this country to oral care, as well as coverage for those services. And complicating all of this is there's dentist deserts, there's areas without a dentist, and there's, you know, many dentists who don't take Medicaid and Medicare doesn't include dental preventative dental care. So there's a lot of complications here. And one of the things that was done in the United Kingdom or in England was that they provide dentists an option to have open slots to take care of emergency situations. And if it's taken, then they get reimbursed. And if it's not taken by a patient, they receive some kind of smaller reimbursement, but it's not in a, a wasted service. Yeah, I totally agree with your comments, Craig, and I can't wait to send you our qualitative data. Great. Yeah, just just to chime in too. Yeah, there's that. I think that's a huge problem because, uh, as Craig mentioned, if someone presents at the right time and it's early enough, the definitive dental care can prevent someone from needing an antibiotic to begin with. So uh, if someone comes in at the right time and gets a root canal, um, then, you know, they don't need an antibiotic. Um, and it's a huge problem. And probably from a medical standpoint, we're, we're complicit. You know, a lot of times we're not familiar with the dental guidelines or what's recommended. And it's challenging. I think that physicians when they see a patient in the emergency department or in a primary care or urgent care setting, they really have very few tools to address uh, acute dental pain, unfortunately. And it's usually, you know, acetaminophen, non-steroidals, and antibiotics are kind of the only 
tools that they have in their their toolbox. And maybe an opioid. <laughs> and sometimes opioids. Yes, that's true too. <laughs> All right. And to, now to come and be swing the discussion back more towards the dental prescribing setting. In um, the discussion section of your paper, Katie, you mentioned that dental practices are included in the CDC core elements for outpatient antibiotic stewardship, but that there really aren't that many examples of implementation of stewardship in those settings. So I think maybe that's a good time to transition to a discussion of how we can improve antibiotic prescribing in dentistry. And I know Katie and Mike, you've both done some work in this area and perhaps you have as well, Craig, but Mike, can we talk a little bit about your paper, the one that you and some of your colleagues, which include Katie on this one, published in this month's issue of Itchy. So what were you trying to accomplish with the work that's described in that paper? Yeah, David, that's a, a great question. At the work that we did was actually building off some some of Katie's work at the University of Illinois at Chicago's dental school, which actually was the first dental setting to actually create a program that uh, antibiotic stewardship program that was fulfilled all of the core element, CDC core element requirements. And what they did was created a, a paper tool to help dentists in an urgent care dental setting decide whether or not someone would need an antibiotic or not. And their preliminary data showed that it actually was highly effective and it substantially reduced unnecessary antibiotic prescribing, which was great. The work that we wanted to do to build off of that is to try to see if we could develop electronic clinical decision support tools to help dentists prescribe antibiotics better. So our goal was to try to find out kind of the drivers for what what tools dentists want to help with antibiotic prescribing and kind of how they make decisions about antibiotic prescribing in dental settings too. Um, so we did those using two different approaches. One was a survey with clinical vignettes. So we asked um, dental students, residents, and faculty at, at the University of Illinois College of Dentistry whether or not they'd prescribe antibiotics or how likely they would prescribe antibiotics and how confident they were in their prescribing decisions. So in the the clinical vignettes, we asked them these questions on a Likert scale of zero to five. And for the most part, we found that there wasn't a lot of confidence in antibiotic prescribing decisions. It improved over time. So dental students were the least confident and then residents were more confident and the faculty was the most, which is kind of what you would expect. But the part that was the most interesting is their knowledge didn't really improve. So, you know, we had, we obviously had answers for all the vignettes and we found that the the dental students, which included a cohort of students that had not seen patients yet, were just as likely to provide a, the correct response as dental faculty at at the University of Illinois Dental School, which was a surprise to us. We would we were expecting it to improve over time, which I thought was kind of a a, a neat tidbit to share and and an interesting finding in our our manuscript. I might see kind of since we have other experts here, get Craig's opinion and Katie's opinion if they want to add additional kind of reactions to the survey findings before we discuss the focus groups? Well, one thing that happens with dental students is that they get sporadic experiences. 
So they may see a patient that needs restorative work and operative dentistry to do restorations and fillings. And then they may not see a patient that needs an antibiotic for six months. It is possible. So the reinforcement is a potential issue there. And not every student is, receives the exact same training. They have different patients, different experiences, and whether or not they have a comprehensive care model at the at the school where they're training is an, another thing. Certain private schools train in the private setting and send uh, their dental students out to practitioners and, and they'll practice under that domain. So there's different learning models for that. And I think reinforcement can be an issue. I, I wonder too, uh, whether the, the fact that people say they are confident, but then they don't know stuff, if that fits under sort of the illusion of explanatory depth. If we're asked, do you know how a zipper works? We say, yeah, I know how a zipper works. Okay, explain to me how a zipper works. And then, well, then it's a little more difficult. So I'm wondering if there's any parlay of that occurring here. Maybe not, but it's. I'm just curious about it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great comment. Um, what I've seen generally in in medical settings when we do antibiotic stewardship in the hospital settings is a lot of times people will start by saying, oh, I, I am not sure we'll develop a protocol for this. So, for example, some of our electrophysiologists will have protocols about when, how long patients need antibiotics after they implant a defibrillator, like an ICD defibrillator in someone. And then over time, that just becomes their practice and they become more confident that their institutional policy uh, is right because they've done it for a long period of time. So my guess is that there's this reinforcement with persistent behavior and the longer it's going on, the more confident people are in uh you know, what may have been a practice that started with little evidence and little confidence, you know, evolves into something where people have really hard, strong opinions about it. We, we see that in, at least in, in medical settings a fair amount. So my guess is that it's it's like that in dentistry, too. Katie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I really love the findings of this study, especially the survey results. I mean, I think this is really a call to action for those of us who are in academic settings to start in our backyards. So we need to go and talk to the College of Dentistry, the School of Dental Medicine, and start talking about, you know, what is antibiotic stewardship and why is it important? Just like how antibiotic stewardship in hospitals started in large academic medical centers, and it's now a joint commission and CMS, you know, mandate. We need we need to do, start the same, or a potential method to start the dissemination and implementation of antibiotic stewardship in dental settings is to start talking to our colleagues that are across the street in schools of dentistry. Right. I agree completely. I think we are siloed a bit at certain colleges of dentistry and schools of dentistry, and the interactions are not always occurring with our medical colleagues. My training is in oral medicine. A lot of physicians don't know what oral medicine is, but oral medicine, I explain, is the link between medicine and dentistry. It's as simple as that. And oftentimes, we're we're the ones at academic centers that can implement some of the things that you all are talking about today. Right. So maybe this is a good time, Mike. You also did focus groups as part of your study. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, the focus groups, we interviewed faculty, residents, and, and dental students about kind of 
what they wanted uh, in tools, how, what motivated their prescribing. A lot of it is kind of similar to what has already been brought up by Craig and Katie, but I'll say some of the themes that we identified is that dentists, a lot of times, at least at, at the University of Illinois, try deferred frequently to physicians, which, you know, honestly is a little bit of a problem in my opinion. A lot of dentists would say that the physicians know more about the patient. They have more experience. They have access to the electronic medical record. So they would have a more in-depth knowledge about whether or not the patient needs the antibiotic. But it's a little problematic because a lot of the physicians aren't aware of dental guidelines. I think where this comes to a head as an example is for antibiotic prescribing for prosthetic joints, where a lot of data has come out recently showing that there's probably no benefit whatsoever for giving an antibiotic for a patient that has a prosthetic joint. But we still see a lot of orthopedic surgeons and other physicians, if the dentist asks, will say, yes, please give an antibiotic beforehand. And I think some of that's anxiety, but I think most of it's probably a lack of knowledge of the the guidelines and kind of newest literature because most physicians aren't aren't keeping up with dental literature. I think they're having a hard time keeping up with medical literature. At least I do sometimes. The other things that we looked at were workflow and knowledge about how they approach antibiotic prescribing. And we saw that there was a little bit less confidence about antibiotic prescribing as we discussed. Uh, and there was a lot of caution, kind of overabundance of caution and recommendations to prescribe antibiotics just to be on the safe side. We did find that they had a lot of interest and enthusiasm about prescribing tools. So there is one tool that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons put out where you basically change guidelines that are 20 page plus documents into simple calculators with a series of yes, no inputs. And dental students and residents really felt empowered by those calculators saying that they felt like it helped them prescribe the right way or there was more confidence in their decision making. Uh, prior to that, there's a lot where they'll say kind of I, I, it seems to me like people will prescribe based on their gut or they have a feeling about whether or not someone would need antibiotic prophylaxis or they'll say, you know, they're medically compromised. But as we talked about, the definition's not standardized. So I think there's a lot of, uh, in dentistry, what kind of similar to what we do with medicine where we say they look sick, you know, and, and they prescribe an antibiotic or they're worried about them having a complication and they might get antibiotic prophylaxis because of this kind of appearance overall. Well, I'd be curious. I, I really appreciate those comments, Mike. I, I, it'd be very interesting to know what percentage of antibiotics dentists are writing when they, uh, as a result of a phone call where they didn't see the patient versus the patient's in my chair and they got the antibiotic because those are very unique scenarios and goes back to the topic that we discussed before that if the majority are a phone call, related, then it has to do with the risk averse behavior and trust and some other things. But if they're in your chair, maybe you manage it differently. And the risk calculators, I'm so happy you brought that up. I've talked uh, to dental societies and dental groups about risk calculators. And I've got a slide that says medicine has over 400 risk calculators and dentistry has zero. And we uh, need to develop those. We need to develop those together. And this would be a simple one that could be developed uh, that 
probably would have a big impact if it was integrated into the electronic health record. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, Craig. So I'm actually doing that with with Katie and some other people as part of a grant. So we uh, we have two we have four tools that we've built so far, which um, we've gotten good feedback. It's based off of recommendations that the dentists themselves shared with us, too. And, you know, there's probably more we need to build about definitions for medically compromised individuals. Um, and more that we need to build related to other common dental conditions. So far, you know, the the uptake has been, um, you know, modest at the moment, uh, but I think some of it is related to the great starting point that that this dental school has with antibiotic prescribing. A lot of our interviews with dental students and residents, as you alluded to, Craig, they said like, you know, I haven't prescribed an antibiotic in in six months, which is a great thing. It might change when they're out in practice. So the the tools that we're building include basic things like outlining what the antibiotic prescription would look like, similar to how it would display on a prescription pad if you were to write it as a paper prescription or to call a pharmacy, because that was something that they were very interested in having. So we're really interested in trying to uh, integrate it into the electronic dental record in the future too. So we're working on grants related to that. So we should chat afterwards because I would be really curious and uh, about your feedback and, and recommendations for next steps. I'd be happy to chat. Yeah, and similar to your comment about tools, Craig, similar with guidelines. If you look at all the guidelines available on the treatment, on the use of antibiotics to treat infectious diseases, extra oral, I mean, there's a very, very long list. And I mean, there's probably a couple thousand pages worth of information to guide clinicians prescribing decisions. But when you look at dentistry, there's three. And there's so many more scenarios where dentists prescribe antibiotics for, you know, echoing back to your earlier comments. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, having three in dentistry does keep it simple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this has been a great discussion of antibiotic use and stewardship, and I hope that it will encourage others to consider some of these issues and more in their own dental practices. But to help people get started, I want to ask each of you to give us an action item or a practical tip that we can take away from the podcast and put into action immediately to make improvements in our own dental practices. Perhaps some advice for someone who's just beginning the process of evaluating antibiotic use in their dental practice, or someone who's identified some opportunities for improvement, but isn't really sure how to get started on the improvement work. So I'm gonna start, I'll give you the first first shot, Craig. What do you think? Well, one area of interest for me is the emergency department on the physician side of getting open communication and collaboration with the closest dental clinic of where these patients end up after they've received potentially the antibiotic the evening before, who are they telling the patient to go to, and are they talking to that dental clinic at all about establishing a relationship? Because we could potentially get a dentist there at that site or set up the calculator for them. And if they can determine that the patient is definitely going to be seen in the morning, maybe the patient can wait 
until they're seen and the tooth can be treated effectively at that time. So I think that would be a really good step and that can be done throughout the country. And I, I believe it's being done to a certain extent at the Grady Hospital because David Resnick down there has, has worked with the ED, I know, but I'm, I'm not aware of others really causing that to scale. How about you, Katie? What advice do you have for us? I would encourage infectious disease clinicians and antimicrobial stewards to just start talking to their school of dentistry, dental clinics, if they have dental clinics within their health system. But every single hospital has oral surgeons to, uh, performing surgeries in their operating rooms. And that is an area that we need to start focusing on, talking to oral surgeons, asking oral surgeons, what can we do to help them? And also, how can we facilitate messages from dentists on what they perceive needs to be changed to medical clinicians? Because, you know, medical clinicians probably don't want to follow the advice of a dentist, but if the antimicrobial stewardship program or an infectious disease attending is delivering the message, I think it's more, much more positively perceived. Mike. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to try to end on a positive note with mine. So my take-home message with a lot of the stuff from focus groups and, and chatting with dentists is that they should feel more empowered to be confident with their prescribing decisions. Um, I think a large portion of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing among dentists is somewhat related to the dentist's feeling push to prescribe antibiotics when they don't think it's necessary. So time and time again, Katie's work and when we've interviewed dentists, they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place when a patient with a prosthetic joint comes to see them and they said, my orthopedic surgeon said that I need an antibiotic before every dental procedure that I have. And then it puts the dentist in a very awkward position. So I think a lot of times one very useful thing that the dentists can do is to try to feel empowered to say, listen, here are the guidelines. This isn't recommended anymore. Or, you know, have the dentists not ask orthopedic surgeons whether or not they should get an antibiotic and trust their own literature. Because Honestly, when I, I'm more confident that the dentists will, will know the right answer about antibiotic prescribing in dental settings than the, the physicians will. So I really want dentists to feel empowered. And part of the reason why we're working on these tools is to help them feel more confident um, when they're making some of these antibiotic stewardship decisions about antibiotic prescribing. Well, thanks for those great recommendations. I think those are all very actionable items that we can take home with us. Thank you all for speaking with me today and for sharing your expertise in this uh, important area. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. Mm -hmm.